0: Well, it's been an interesting week in sports this week, right? Um, the Tennessee Titans fired their coach, Mike Vrabel. Uh, I believe it was Tuesday after six years. And I remember a couple of years ago, he was the coach of the year. The Seattle Seahawks fired Pete Carroll um, after a, a number of years there, that was Wednesday. Then Bill Belichick left the New England Patriots after all those years up there and, uh, and six Super Bowls and lots of AFC championships and, and, and wins. But maybe the biggest shock, at least for me, was on Wednesday when it was announced that Nick Saban said he's retiring after 17 years of coaching the Alabama Crimson Tide. Now. Some of you don't feel the way that I feel. Um, a lot of other SEC schools celebrated. Um, they had a, you know, they rolled tumors Corner at Auburn. I know some Tennessee fans that had parties at their house. Um, but this is a guy who won seven national championships, six of them at Alabama, had 274 college wins. And nine, let's see, nine SEC championships. So you remember he had a national championship at LSU. Always like to remind my LSU fans of that. And then he had six. Uh, he had six more championships at Alabama. But but here's a guy that many view to be the goat of college football, the greatest of all time at coaching. What's his secret? How did he accomplish all of that? You know, there's lots of answers to the question, I I think. I see some hardcore Alabama fans out in the audience that could probably give you their perspective on it. But, But Saban is disciplined, focused, driven, and he built a program in Tuscaloosa based on the mindset that we will do whatever we have to do to win. And he did it. Now, what is it that gives somebody that kind of drive and focus in life? What what makes them successful? What motivates them? What pushes them forward? What inspires them? These are interesting questions, right? When you look at a career like the one that he had, it's very rare for somebody to accomplish what Nick Saban accomplished. But it didn't come easy. He worked and he worked his tail off to get it done. And and so many of us, at least I'll speak for myself, we're really sad to see him hang it up because you never know what the future has in store, even though they found a great coach and uh, the Washington coach. But it's something to think about. Anybody that has that kind of drive and success in life, what is it that motivates them? What is it that keeps them on track? we started this new sermon series in 2024 called Taking Jesus Seriously. And we're studying the Sermon on the Mount. Now, some biblical scholars will tell you that the Sermon on the Mount may not necessarily have been one sermon given in one setting. Some will say it was a compilation of Jesus' core teachings that we just happen to find in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, But I referred or I've heard this referred to before as the greatest hits of Jesus or the thesis of Christianity. Um, Whether or not he gave the teachings in one setting is really not the point. We're familiar with these teachings, but we don't always apply them. We know them, but they're very difficult to live up to. Um, But we're called to wrestle with them in our faith journey, in our lives, and to do whatever we can uh, to, to, to apply them in our spiritual lives and our faith journeys. So here we go, the sermon begins with the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are Jesus's understanding of the blessed life. And when Jesus says the word blessed, we can translate that to mean happy, fulfilled, content. However, we have to acknowledge that Jesus, what Jesus considers to be the blessed life is very different from what many in our world would consider to be the blessed life, the happy life. In the Declaration of Independence, which is certainly one of the most significant founding documents of our country, it says that we all have certain inalienable rights, and among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What are the things that make us happy? What are the things that make you happy in your life on a regular basis? few years ago, I was flying to Orlando, Florida for a, uh, a leadership convention. I think I was going down to a Maxwell event and somebody gave me a book this morning that was signed by John Maxwell for me, which I was really appreciated. But I'm going down there and if you go to Orlando at any time of the year, you know that there's lots of kids on your flight who are absolutely giddy because they're going to Disney World, right? And so they're happy and they're bouncing and they're singing and they got the ears on and all, you know, all that stuff. And so Years ago, Walt Disney created a magical place that makes people happy, um, especially kids. But here's the thing, with kids, it really doesn't take making, taking them to Disney World. You don't have to do that for them to be happy. Kids get excited about little things. Um, I was a bachelor this weekend with Wade, and so Clayton's on the ski trip with our youth. Pray for them and those leaders. Uh, Megan and Montgomery are uh, in Atlanta for a theater competition. So it's just Wade and me and said, Wade, what do you want to do? And he said, I want to go to Ginza. All right, done, went to Ginza. Wade, what do you want to do after dinner? I want to watch the original Top Gun, done, you know? One scene we'll fast forward through. But my point is, it doesn't take a lot to make kids happy. You know, little things make them happy, building a fort, or a treehouse, playing hide and go seek, giving them little gifts, you know, uh, baking cookies, riding a scooter, getting ice cream, going to a water park, you know, it, that kids get happy. But that's not true with us as adults, right? The world's kind of done a number on us. Um, it beats us up, it disappoints us, it hurts us, it wears us down, and, and so I often wonder at what point in our lives do we lose that childlike sense of magic, innocence, wonder, and adventure? And, and when do we become jaded and cynical and, and flat? At what, at what point in our lives do we make that shift? When does it happen? Or or does it just happen over over time? What makes you happy? Arthur Brooks teaches up at the Kennedy School at Harvard, wrote this op-ed years ago called A Formula for Happiness. And in the article, he basically said that 48% of our happiness in life, almost half is is tied to genetics. Another 40% is the result of things that have happened to us in our recent past. And and, and that will change as new things happen and we go through different situations. And then he says, the other 12% has to do with what we choose to focus on. So things like our faith, our family, our community, our job, and in America, it seems like our careers and our jobs play a huge factor in determining our levels of happiness, especially for those who are workaholics and who work all the time. But that's the formula he gave, 48% from genetics, 40% what we've been through, 12% what we focus on. William Barclay, the biblical scholar said, there are three basic things you need to be happy in life. You need someone to love, you need something to do, and you need something to look forward to. If you go and Google how to be happy or the secret to happiness, you know, you'll find thousands of responses, but probably the top two are happiness is appreciating what you have and not taking it for granted. And secondly, happiness, is a choice that you make. Since this is MLK weekend, I think we could also make a strong argument that happiness or fulfillment comes when we work for something that is greater than ourselves. In his case, it was civil rights for all people. He said, remember in Washington, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation or they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. But guess what? King worked and worked and worked for that, and ultimately it costed him his life. He was killed, the Lorraine Motel, 1968. But he believed in it, equality. Was he perfect? No. But he believed in that message and he worked for it and he worked for it. And so what I'm saying is that sometimes in life, we get happy when we work for something that we really believe in, even if it feels like it's an uphill journey the entire way. You know, working to grow this church, that makes me happy. It's not always easy, (laughs) but it's fulfilling. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount talking about the happy life, the blessed life. But, but, but what does that look like in our world? J.B. Phillips once made a list of the Beatitudes from the earthly perspective. He said, if, if we made Beatitudes for a world, here's what they would be. Happy are the pushers, for they get on in the world. Happy are the hard-boiled, for they never let life hurt them. Happy are those who complain, for, for they get their own way. Happy are the blase, for they never worry over their sins. Happy are the slave drivers, for they get results. Happy are the knowledgeable men of the world, for they know their way around. And happy are the troublemakers, for they make people take notice of them. But the kingdom of God is very different from the kingdoms of this world. And so the Beatitudes are very different from that list. And the Beatitudes Jesus is describing his vision of a life that is defined by inner joy, which is untouchable by the world. And so what I wanna do is lift a few of these up here this morning. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Eugene Peterson wrote the, 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 the message, just another translation of the Bible. Here's the translation. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope Because with less of you, there is more of God and his rule. Who are the poor in spirit? I think it's another way of saying those that are humble. It's the opposite of proud and arrogant. It means humble and reverent, not conceited and self-satisfied. I don't think that Jesus was specifically talking about the economically poor, even though if you read Luke's gospel, he just said, blessed are the poor but you're much more likely to be poor in spirit if you struggle to make ends meet in this world. Poor in spirit means understanding that we are dependent upon God. It means looking to God for daily strength and guidance, daily hope and inspiration. It means acknowledging that we don't have all the answers, even though sometimes we think we do. Acknowledging our dependence on God is the first step to humility. And it's probably the most important key to finding happiness in life. Realizing that we can't do it all on our own, even though we try, right? All of us have things in our lives that we simply have to turn over to God. Struggles, hardships, fears, but we're hesitant to turn them over. But the sooner we stop trying to control everything and do everything on our own, the better off we're gonna be. Because the need for control is what drives so much worry and anxiety. Next, Jesus says, and I'm not gonna get to all of them today out of time. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. The message version. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You know, sometimes we think that this beatitude is just speaking to those who are mourning a tragedy or a loss of a loved one. And it's true, but I also think think it means blessed are those who are deeply sorry for their own sinfulness and brokenness and the effects that it has on other people. It also means blessed are those who are desperately sorry for the suffering and the heartache that takes place in our world every single day. Blessed are those who care about what other people have to go through and endure as opposed to just focusing on their own lives and their own troubles. Blessed are the compassionate. Blessed are those with a conscience. Blessed are those who are not just self-absorbed in their own affairs. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn and we all mourn because life is always changing and, and change brings loss and loss brings grief and grief brings pain. Life simply does not stay the same. It can't. And so we mourn and we hurt and Jesus says, blessed are you. Next, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. Message, you're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you will find yourself being cared for. Being merciful means, I think, knowing when other people have have had enough, they've reached their limit. It means cutting others some slack from time to time. Being merciful means being kind and compassionate, not only in spirit, but also in deeds and in actions. Be kind to everybody because everybody's fighting some kind of battle. And, and oftentimes you don't know what it is. You have no idea, but everybody carries what I've always called invisible baggage. And when you're a minister, Ann and Farrell, me, we get to see a lot of this all the time. And some people are carrying some really heavy loads. And you know, so many people in our world get so caught up in their own problems And they forget that there's others all around them that are struggling. And so if we are disinterested in the lives of other people, then there is a good chance that they will be disinterested in us. But if others see that we care, then they might return by caring themselves. So we can translate this fifth beatitude as saying, blessed are those who walk in the shoes of others, who see through the eyes of others, who think the thoughts of others, who feel the feelings of others. Blessed are those who care about other people because others will care for them in return. And so I think it's this beatitude that goes hand in hand with what we call the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you want love, then love. If you want forgiveness, then forgive. If you want kindness, then go be kind. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Message. You're blessed when you get your inside, wor- your inside world, meaning your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. And another way to translate this might be to say, blessed is the person whose motives are entirely unmixed for that person shall see God. Which begs the obvious question for humans, are any of us capable of having unmixed motives? Is it possible to be truly pure in heart? Don't we have, all of us, our agendas and our thoughts that we probably wouldn't want to share? You know, I think it's rare for people in this day and age to do things with completely unmixed motives. Think about it, even our finest actions often have mixed motives. So for example, do we do the work of the church for Christ or for our own prestige? Do we show up on Sunday mornings to feel better about ourselves, to get credit for being here, to get our spouse off our back, or do we show up to truly worship God, to come to know Christ and to grow in our faith? Do we give to charity selflessly or because our name's gonna be put in the publication at the end of the year, that's gonna look nice? Do we read the Bible and pray on a regular basis or, 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 or just you know because, because we wanna be pious and look at me, or do we really wanna commune with God and learn more about Christ? Jesus says that those who are pure in heart with unmixed motives will see God. And so this beatitude I think has to do with our intentions. And we should always ask, what is my intention? And this is not an easy question sometimes. What's my motive? Last one today, one of my favorites. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Message version. You're blessed when you can show people to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. See, there's a difference between peacemakers and peace lovers. Many of us love peace, but how many of us work for peace? How many of us actively go seek to reconcile and bring people together? How many of us go to talk to somebody when we have a problem with them instead of talking to somebody else about it? There's a proactive component uh, to being a peacemaker in this world. We're, we're, we're called to build bridges. We're called to reconcile relationships before they get broken. We're sometimes called to face difficult situations and have hard conversations that are not easy. You know, I remember uh, John Locke, who passed away this year, Vanderbilt philosophy professor. He made this comment one time at a Rotary Club that stuck with me and he said, there is far too much passivity in our culture. Meaning many of us will do everything in our power to avoid Difficult situations because we don't want to deal with them. But avoiding difficult situations is not always what leads to peace, it's sometimes what keeps a conflict going. Stanley Hauerwas wrote that classic book called The Peaceable Kingdom. And he said, our need to be in control is the basis for the violence of our lives. Since our control and power cannot help but be built on an insufficient basis, we must use force to maintain the illusion that we are in control. We are deeply afraid of losing what unity of self we have achieved. And so any idea or person threatening that unity must be either manipulated or eliminated. Robert Shuler said, who are the peacemakers? It's not necessarily the people that are talking about peace all the time. Peacemakers are those who are doing something, creating something, building something. Maybe peacemakers are people like you and me in our own ways. We're trying to bring Jesus Christ into human hearts. If you want peace in your family, if you want peace in your community, If you want peace in races and cultures, then he says, there will never be peace anywhere as long as there is war going on in your heart and in your soul. So it has to start here. And I've always believed that if peace is gonna happen on any level in our world, it has to start here. We can't be peacemakers if we don't know what real peace is. And I think finding it is one of the most challenging things to do in life but we have to do it. So these are the Beatitudes. I didn't get to all of them, there's a few more. What Jesus calls the blessed life, the happy life, it's countercultural thinking, but it's powerful, amen.